As was said, we are in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a, is a heavy book. I'm trying to think of how I would describe reading it. It's almost like eating a really rich meal. If you eat too fast, you get the itis. You just want to go take a nap because you've overwhelmed yourself with the richness of it. So I want us to take our time and slowly kind of try to digest the deep and rich truths that are in the book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight we're in chapter 5. We're going to be doing the whole chapter. And as you flip to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I want to start tonight by just asking a question, asking all of us a question. Have you ever had that unsettling feeling that you don't belong? Not that you don't belong like among your current friend group or among the people you're around, but that you don't belong like here, like on earth, like we were created for more. I've tried to look for words to describe it, and maybe the closest one I could find is uh, melancholy, sort of an unexplainable sadness or emptiness. Maybe you felt it when you're at a party and everybody's laughing and sharing appetizers and having small talk, and that melancholy just kind of sneaks up on you. And you're like, huh, is this it? Is this all I'm created for? Or maybe you're on vacation and you're, you've been looking forward to this vacation for weeks or for months, time off work, you get to enjoy the beautiful scenery of the beach or the mountains, wherever your preferred vacation is. And again, that feeling sneaks up on you. Like, huh, is this it? Am I just created to take pictures and see sights? which are enjoyable and take time off of work, which can be hard sometimes. But is this really it? I used to have that feeling all the time after Christmas when I was growing up. Christmas is by far my favorite holiday and sort of the pinnacle of the year for me at least. I love the gifts, I love the music, I love the food, I love being with my family. And every year at Christmas, there'd be this kind of big buildup in the month of December. We're making meals, we're drinking eggnog, we're baking cookies, we're putting up Christmas lights. And then you open the gifts, and you're sitting there at like 3, 4 o'clock on Christmas afternoon, and I'm kind of like, huh, is, is this the pinnacle of my existence, to pull paper off of boxes and pull gifts out and enjoy time with my family? And it's good. It's enjoyable, right? You don't say anything because you don't want to appear ungrateful. But I think if we all thought hard enough, we could maybe all think of moments where we think, huh, is this really it? And maybe, if we were honest with ourselves, we might even feel that way about church. In our honest efforts to come before God, to worship Him, to study His Word, we, we certainly pour our whole selves into it. I think that's a good thing. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might realize that even in the pursuit of God, even in church, there are those melancholy feelings of, is this really I appreciate the book of Ecclesiastes because Solomon certainly acknowledges this emptiness, this melancholy, all over the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is just translated from the Greek word teacher or preacher or one who talks before an assembled group. Solomon was known for his wisdom, for his proverbs, and people would come from far and wide to hear his wisdom, to hear him expound on his life experiences. And Solomon has a dilemma. And he's honest about that dilemma all over the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon's dilemma is that he's lived the life that just about anyone in his day would want to live. And yet at the end of his life, 
The feeling has snuck up on him. The melancholy, the is this it? And he says it all over the book. He doesn't sugarcoat it. Everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. These sort of repeated calls to experiencing and knowing great things in life, but then coming back to things are meaningless. Things are vanity. He probably had the same feeling that I did after Christmas where you kind of hit the pinnacle of what you think would be a great experience and you enjoy it and then you're like, I'm going to die one day and is this all I was created to experience? It's a pretty deep, heavy truth. That's why I think Ecclesiastes is kind of like a, like a rich meal, like barbecue. I was eating barbecue with Eddie on Friday. It's like you got to eat it slowly or else you just overwhelm yourself with the reality of it. I really appreciate C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. I think he sort of sheds light on this idea really well. He says this, if I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was created for another world. So here's the reality, is if life under the sun, which is what we've called this series in Ecclesiastes and is sort of a theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, is life under the, if life under the sun is ultimately unsatisfying, then I think C.S. Lewis puts a point on it well, that means we were created for another reality. And that reality is one that's not subjected to the futility of sin like the Bible talks about in Romans 8.20, that all of creation, not just individuals, but all of creation is subjected to futility. The reality we were created for is God's presence. His presence is the ultimate reality. And sin is merely just a distortion of the reality that we were created for. So what I want us to do today is I want us to look at Solomon's dilemma And I want us to look how he analyzes and expounds on his experience and how even in his time, which is just like our time, we're living in a broken, sinful world, even in his time, he pushes himself and he longs for God's ultimate reality. So we're going to actually move, uh, start in the middle, go to the end of the book, and then start at the top. So we're going to move a little bit backwards. We're going to start in verses 8 through 20, and then we'll do the first seven verses, verses 1 through 7. So again, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're actually going to start at verse 8. So here we go, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but full is the stomach of the rich, but full is the stomach of the rich, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were crept by their owner to his hurt, And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked as he came, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation, sickness, and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat, 
and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil in which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It's Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20. So I want to make a few observations about Solomon's assessment of life under the sun. The first is this. First observation we can take from Solomon's wisdom is that wealth and income are meaningless or vanity. This is in verses 10 through 12. That word vanity means, uh, in the original Hebrew, hebel. Hebel is also used to refer to idols in the other parts of the Old Testament. So he's not saying that these things don't exist or that that, that, that there's some facade, but what he's saying is just like an idol, they exist, but they don't give the satisfaction that we ultimately think that we're going to get out of them. And the reason why is in those verses, because more goods leads to more consumption. And as we know, the old proverb, right? More money, more what? More money, more problems, right? That's kind of what he's saying. If, as an example, if I could illustrate this, if you remember when you were 15 or 16 years old and you thought, I'm going to experience freedom. And what does every 15 or 16-year-old think they're going to get freedom from? Buying their first car. So you work that summer job and you save up your $1,000, $2,000. You buy your Chevy Cavalier, your Dodge Neon, your Honda Civic, and you think, I'm going to be free. This is going to be amazing. And then what happens when you buy the car? Car insurance, oil changes, gas, car repairs. Everybody all of a sudden is your friend and needs a ride everywhere. Now you have to sit in traffic. Now you have to get a job to cover all these newfound expenses that you had with the car that you invested in. So again, the goods increase, but the only advantage we have with it is to see it with our eyes. Thus, the car is Hebel. It doesn't not exist, but it exists insofar as it doesn't give us the freedom that we thought we'd get when we invested in it. This is toiling. This is working. This is what life under the sun is. We see something and we think, man, I'm going to achieve freedom by making this purchase. And not that cars are bad. Cars are good. Cars are enjoyable. They serve their purpose. But the deep longings we have for freedom, for independence, they aren't given by the cars that we invest in because they're hebel, they're vanity. They don't satisfy at the deep level that we thought they would. And the riches we make to buy cars or to buy whatever the next purchase is, they only create more work, more toil. I don't own a house yet, but I've heard similar stories for people that buy a first house. You gotta replace the roof. You gotta replace the air conditioning, the basement floods. All it does is create more toil. Here's the second observation we can make of life under the sun. Oppression and evil are real. This is in verses 13 and 14, as well as verses eight and nine. So just to sort of level set as I talk about this second point, Ecclesiastes is part of the wisdom literature, what people consider the wisdom literature of scripture. So think Proverbs, think certain parts of the Psalms, think the book of Job. And I appreciate Ecclesiastes because as a somewhat cynical person myself, I think Ecclesiastes is a cynical wisdom book where Proverbs kind of gives you this uh, altruistic, idealistic view of life, like work hard and be righteous and good things will come to you. And that's true to an extent. Ecclesiastes gives you wisdom in light of sin and in light of brokenness in the world. Ecclesiastes is 
that sort of balances wisdom with the reality of a sinful world and human nature. So for example, in Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9, it talks about in a province, if you see oppression of the poor, violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed at the matter, for the high officials watch by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Contrast that with what you might see, oops, sorry, I didn't advance that when we were reading. Contrast that with what you might see in Proverbs 22, verse 9. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They will serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. So imagine if we were to try to personify these two takes on wisdom literature. You get a new job. Proverbs will come up to you and say, hey, work hard, do your best, and one day you'll stand before the CEO. And then Ecclesiastes come along and says, actually, if you show up on day one of that job and you see people being exploited and you see justice being taken away from people, you see workers not getting their just due, don't be surprised because sinful people control all levels of the company and the land and the resources of this land are scarce and finite and they are controlled by greedy, sinful people. And we've seen both, haven't we? People in this world can get jobs and work hard and get rewarded for them, and also people in this world can get jobs and work hard and be exploited. I really appreciate Ecclesiastes' sort of hard, sobering look at the reality of life under the sun. Here's another example, Ecclesiastes 5, 13 and 14. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by an owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Now take a look at Proverbs 13, 22. It says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. So again, if we try to personify these two wisdom books, imagine you get a big inheritance or you win the lottery. Proverbs will come up to you and say, Hey, be righteous. Invest this money. Save it. Put it away. And you'll be righteous and give it on to your son. But the sinner's wealth, it won't go that way for them. But then Ecclesiastes comes up to you. And Ecclesiastes says, actually, be careful. I've seen riches that were hoarded to the destruction of people. And people make investments, and those investments go bad. And at the end, the people who made those investments have nothing to give to their children. And they leave this world with nothing in their hand, the same way they came. And again, we've probably seen and heard of both of these realities. People invest in things that are wise. I remember a a man growing up told me he had the opportunity to invest in Walmart at a very uh, time of the price when the stock is, was very, very low. That's a very wise investment that a righteous person could have made and gotten a big return. But at the same time, someone could have invested in Enron. And all that money's gone. And you die, and you don't take any of it with you. And your children have nothing to show for the wisdom that you tried to pursue, for the investment that you tried to make. What's interesting is that although Proverbs and Ecclesiastes seem to be uh, sort of two sides of the same coin, contradicting takes on wisdom, they're actually attributed to the same author. They're both attributed to Solomon, right? Because really what Solomon, I think, is wise enough to illustrate for us is that we exist in somewhat of a paradox. Yes, on one hand, people can live righteously, make wise decisions, and avoid a lot of calamity and enjoy a lot of benefits in this life. And at the same time, yes, People can try to live righteously. People can try to make wise decisions. And they can still be affected negatively by sin and its grip on the world. And also, we all die at the end. 
Both of those are takes on wisdom. And although Solomon takes differing approaches in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, his conclusion in both of those books is the same thing. So Proverbs, sort of the theme going throughout Proverbs is, yes, be wise, but at the end of the day, we should fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Ecclesiastes 5.7, in the passage we're going to study today, again, it says, but God is the one you must fear. So despite our optimistic or pessimistic views of wisdom, at the end of the day, we still have to fear, honor, or reverence the Lord. What I appreciate about Proverbs is that Proverbs is wisdom in light of sin's consequences. Solomon is sort of giving wisdom about the consequences we may face in this life if we're not wise. If you don't invest your money, you could lose it. If you're angry, you could cause destruction and calamity. Ecclesiastes is wisdom in light of the curse of sin, meaning that we all die. So even if you're wise, even if you invest wisely, even if you don't let anger ruin your life, we will all die because we live in a finite world. Verse 15, I'll just reemphasize this. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and take nothing with him for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So death is the one equalizer that no matter how wise we were, no matter how good of a life we lived, we all die. And we try to avoid that today, and perhaps that's why Ecclesiastes can be somewhat of an uncomfortable or, or dense book to read, because death is not something in modern culture that we think a lot about or a reality that we're faced with a lot. Uh, we have senior care facilities where people who are going towards the end of their life can spend their final few days, and the people who are in the middle of their life and don't think they're dying don't have to be faced with that reality. If your hair is getting gray, just dye it, just for men. You avoid the reality of death, or you just shave it all, and then you're like, oh, I'm bald, I just, this, is, this is how I look. But really, you know you have a big bald spot in the back, right? Or if your face is starting to show some wrinkling, some smile lines, you can get collagen injections or put on facial cream to avoid that reality that literally looks you in the face every day when you see in the mirror like, man, I don't look the same as I did when I was 18 or 25 or 35 or 45, right? Death is continually creeping up on us. It's the one reality that all of us can't avoid. No matter how much we dye our hair or put uh, cream on our face or avoid people that are nearing or coming close towards death. But what I appreciate about Solomon and this take on Ecclesiastes is that he's reminding ourselves of the reality of life under the sun, that if this is all we experience under the sun, the highs and the lows, if this is all we got, then our, rea our reality and our existence is a cruel one. And what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes is he points us to our need for something to redeem us from life under the sun, its highs and its lows. There's a book that's written I haven't read yet, but I really appreciated a quote from it. It's called The Surprising Path to Living Hope, Remembering Death, and it's by Matthew McCullough. Here's the quote. So long as death is someone else's problem, Jesus will be someone else's savior. Did I get it there? Yeah, good. So Solomon is reminding us ultimately of our need for a savior by reminding us of wisdom in light of the curse of sin, which is death. And this goes on in verse 16. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there for him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation, sickness, and anger. 
And this is the third observation we can make from Solomon's assessment of life under the sun in chapter 5, is that we don't take anything with us when we go. Death is a reality that we all face, no matter how wise you were, no matter how foolish you were. And when you die, you don't take anything with you. So, what do we gain by our toiling and our working? Nothing, right? And to believe so, to believe that anything in this life truly belongs to us, is foolish. This is not just Solomon's wisdom, but this is Jesus' wisdom as well. Luke 12, 16 through 21, Jesus talks about a man who came into a great harvest, and he said, hey, I'll take this harvest, and I'll just build bigger barns for myself. But here Jesus, giving the same, similar counsel to Solomon, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for everyone who stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. So again, Jesus even reminds us of this reality that is, if this life we have, if under the sun is all we have, whether we get a lot, whether we get a little, our reality and our existence is a cruel one because we all die. And we don't really get much of a silver lining in this passage until we get into verses 18 through 20. Somewhat of a silver lining where Solomon talks about the best we can hope for under the sun is to work or toil, to enjoy what we have, to not love money and know that God gives us riches and we should be in love or prize him above any riches he may give us. And the gift of God, our lot, is to be occupied by him because riches and work and toil, that whole cycle of working, consuming, and working and consuming and working and consuming, we were created for more than that. We were created for, the, for more than the meaninglessness of wealth and income. We were created for more than the meaninglessness of oppression and toil and injustice in the world. And we were created for more than the meaninglessness of however good our life goes, we all die at the end and leave nothing and take nothing with us. Because God's presence is our ultimate reality. Sin has distorted that and Solomon is giving us very wise observations about the consequences but also the curse of how sin has distorted God's presence, his ultimate reality. But then in the beginning of this chapter, we get insight into how Solomon pushes into, in his time and space, pushes into God's ultimate reality, how he strives for what he was created for and what all of us were created for, the presence of God, our ultimate reality. This is in verse, uh, chapter 5 in the first seven verses here. We'll read these in a second. Okay, Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. A dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words go many, grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. 
So Solomon's striving for the ultimate reality of God's presence means this term, the fear of the Lord or fearing God. And for his time and for his place, he's giving wisdom for what it means for the people at that time to fear God. That first means with acknowledging or respecting his presence. And the wisdom he's giving is for how people at the time can acknowledge or respect the presence of God in the house of God. So this house of God that's mentioned in verse 1, this is an actual, real, physical place that existed that Solomon constructed. This is a, sorry, again, I didn't give you the verse. This is a, a sort of summary. We're not going to get into all of it. But if you read 1 Kings chapter 8, it talks about how Solomon built a place for God's presence to dwell tangibly among men. This was a promise that David wanted to fulfill that ultimately Solomon would. And when Solomon built this house of God, we see the amazing uh, sort of description of what it's like for the presence of God to dwell among people at that time. And in the center of this house of God, there's what's called the Ark of the Covenant. This is the most tangible way in which God exists or showed his presence on earth at that time. So this house of God that Solomon is describing is a real place where people would go to be in the presence of God, to worship, to offer sacrifices, and to pray. So the wisdom Solomon's giving here, he's saying, be, uh, don't be uh, rash with your steps when you go into the house of God. That's a real place that existed that had a real presence of God and a real Ark of the Covenant in which God at that time dwelled tangibly with people. What he says here in this verse, to listen is better to offer sacrifices. That word listen can also be translated obey. It's the same Greek word that's used in 1 Samuel 15, 22, when the counsel is given to Saul, it's better to obey than to sacrifice. What Solomon means is that it's better to listen when we're in the presence of God to see what we can obey than it is to, in where, when, we're in, when people at that time were in his house, just randomly offer sacrifices. It's better to find out what would please the Lord when we're in his house than it is to just do things that we think will mindlessly appease him. It's better to know and choose to do the will of God than to randomly offer sacrifices. Now, this probably carried weight for the people at the time when he says it's better to listen than it is to offer sacrifices. Because at the time, in Solomon's day, when the presence of God would dwell tangibly among men, if people did something irreverent, there's a chance that God would kill them. This is what happened with Solomon's father, David. Remember that Ark of the Covenant I talked about that dwelled in the middle of the house of God? David, this is a Time Magazine article. There's sort of a debate on whether people actually found the Ark of the Covenant. But this is an artist's depiction of how people would carry it at the time. It's a holy uh, sort of construction that God gave specific instructions on how it was built, how it was to be transported, and how it was to be moved from place to place. David was taking the Ark of Covenant was carrying the Ark of the Covenant in a way that uh, God did not approve of. It was on the back of an oxen. And in 1 Samuel, or sorry, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 8, we read this account of the Ark of the Covenant being on the back of an oxen. That oxen stumbles, and the Ark of the Covenant begins to tilt. Some of us know what happens. The Ark of the Covenant tilts. A man named Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the Ark, and he's struck dead. God kills him right then and there. Because God's presence, when it's dwelling tangibly among people and we randomly or irreverently do things that are sinful, we are brought into the ultimate reality. And what the ultimate reality is in that time and place when God's presence is dwelling tangibly among men and there's sin in his presence, what's the wages of sin? Death. 
This is a, it's a hard passage to try to talk about, and we could probably do an entire sermon on Uzzah and sort of the, the, the underlying meanings behind this. But at the, at the highest level, what I hope we can take away from the passage on Uzzah and the counsel that Solomon's giving here is this. Psalm 5, verse 4. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. So God's presence is the ultimate reality. And when we exist in that ultimate reality, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no evil. And when God's presence would show up tangibly among people at that time, if there was evil, God punished it justly. That's a tough reality, and I realize it is. It's tough for me to even read. If you read the passage in 2 Samuel, David was actually kind of upset with God, like, how does this happen? But above all things, God is holy, and evil may not dwell with him. So when his presence dwelt tangibly among people and people did irreverent or uh, non-God-ordained things, his justice would come right then and there, and people would lose their life because we're sinful and because evil cannot dwell in his presence. And again, I realize this makes us uncomfortable, but I will sort of, as I was preparing for this, kept coming back to this quote from the book by Matthew McCullough, as long as death is someone else's problem, Jesus will be someone else's savior. So as long as we think that we couldn't be Uzzah if our sin were to be put in the manifest presence of God, as long as we think that that's someone else's problem, then the salvation that's offered in Jesus will be for someone else. But the reality is that my sin and Uzzah's sin and all of our sin is deserving of the same punishment. And if we go right now into the manifest presence of God, if we were to be, if he were to walk into this room, we would all die if, if there's no one to atone for our sins. So what does that create the need for? Jesus, right? But if that's someone else's problem, then Jesus is someone else's savior. I really appreciate, uh, I think it was at the, the picnic we had a few weeks ago, someone was sharing a testimony of just getting to interact with Chris and how Chris had emphasized over and over again that God doesn't owe us anything. And it's true. He dwells in unapproachable light. And we are sinful, fallen people. But yet, praise God for the mercy that's been extended to us in Jesus, that he can actually be our savior. And yet, this is the same reality that we see Moses face. In Exodus 33, 19, uh, 19 through 23, when God's manifest presence shows up again, Moses is standing there and the Lord says to him, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face and no one can see my face and live. The Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock while my glory passes and I will put you in the cleft of a rock and cover you with my hands until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Again, God's glory, God's presence if we were to see it with our sinful eyes, with our sinful bodies, it's like staring into the sun. If you were to stare into the sun, even as far as we are from the sun on earth, if you were to stare at it too long, your eyes would be damaged. If you were to somehow get on a rocket ship and shoot yourself 100 yards from the sun, you would be killed. You'd be dissolved. I don't, I'm not a scientist, but you, I don't think you'd survive. And I don't think any of us want to test that hypothesis, right? God's glory is the same way, and yet God created a million suns and a million stars, so when his glory shows up manifestly among men, if our sinfulness, if we're existing in our sinful state, we will not survive. But consider the paradox of this passage. Moses is given the privilege of getting to see God's manifest presence, the thing which if he saw would kill him. 
And the very same God who said, if you see my face, you won't live, is also the same God who extends his hand and covers him and hides him in the clefts of the rock and extends mercy to him. Where do we see that same paradox play out most poignantly? The cross. The very same thing that if we were to experience it, if we were to enter into that same punishment that Jesus got, we wouldn't survive. But yet the same thing that if we experienced it would kill us is the very thing which God uses to extend mercy to us so that now through Jesus we can enter the presence of God with freedom and confidence. So the very thing, the very God whose presence is so glorious that if we saw it we die is the same God who's so merciful that he extends ultimately his son to allow us to come into his presence. And as Chris said, this is good news in light of the fact that God doesn't owe us anything. Let's get back to, to, to chapter 5, verse 2. This is why Solomon is, is giving warning to the people when they enter into the house of God. Because today, in our modern space and time, sometimes we might downplay the holiness of God because we, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't generalize, but it's probable that none of us have had explanations like people who are going into the house of God, who are around the Ark of the Covenant, where you may have seen someone die from touching the holiness of God. But yet, Solomon is giving them counsel at the time that's in line with what they'd experienced. So he's saying, when you go into the house of God, verse 2, don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. Essentially, he's saying, when you go into this house of God where sacrifices are being offered and the Ark of the Covenant is there and priests are ministering, don't babble. Don't waste your words. If you go into this house of God and you've got a busy life, then you'll have a busy mind and your mind will wander when you're in the presence of God, which is not a good thing because if you do something irreverent, there's a chance that the consequences could be adverse. So be careful. Don't let your mind wander. Don't let your words wander when you go into the house of God that Solomon had built, where God's presence dwelled. And then again, verse 4. When you vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger, that is a mistake. Why should God be angry at you and destroy the work of your hands? So when you make a vow before God, if you read Old Covenant prayers, a lot of times people would make vows. This is Psalm 66. I will come into your house with burnt offerings, and I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. So essentially, I will make a vow to God, and I will fulfill it. This is the language of the Old Covenant. The temple messenger here, uh, there's different interpretations of who or what that actually is. Some people think that's an angel. Some people would say that this temple messenger is a priest who ministers in the house of God and might hear these vows that are being made. But either way, the same point is, is true here, that if we enter the presence of God and there's a reverence or there's sin, God could rightfully destroy us and be angry with us. This then is all summed up with verse 7. The whole summary of the book of Ecclesiastes in light of all the wisdom we're getting and the whole summary of Proverbs comes together in verse 7. When dreams increase and when words go many, there is vanity, but God is the one that you must fear. So all this ends in an exhortation to fear, to reverence, to respect the name of God. So if we sum up kind of what we learned here, whoop, not there, there we go. If we sum up what Solomon was telling of the people at the time when they enter into this house of God, he's saying, don't be hasty when you enter his presence. Watch your feet, watch your step, don't rush in. Don't make vows you can't keep. 
Don't vow a vow before God because his presence is there and there's, there's a, a chance that he could be rightfully angry with you if you vow something and don't fulfill it. Don't let your mind or your words wander. That's foolish. And then lastly, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Remember that he's magnificent, that he occupies the highest heaven and that he's allowed some of his presence to be contained in this temple, in this Ark of the Covenant at this time. So remember, the words here are being written to a people who are entering a physical house with a physical Ark of the Covenant where God's presence dwelled. So to figure out how this applies to us, we have to see it through the ultimate redemptive lens of Scripture. We have to put Solomon's words in perspective. And the best person to put Solomon's words in perspective, I would say, is Jesus. This is Jesus in Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now, something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is saying, the wisest person that ever lived, the person where everyone would come and listen to his wisdom and hear and expound upon life, something greater than Solomon is here. He's referring to himself. So while Solomon is sort of a tunnel that's pointing us towards an ultimate reality, the light at the end of that tunnel is Jesus. And Jesus is saying that about himself. Now, something greater than Solomon's wisdom is here. What I find interesting is that Solomon's counsel for how people are to conduct themselves when they enter this house of God aligns very nicely with Jesus' counsel in the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of his words, Jesus' specifically about prayer, align directly with how Solomon advised people to conduct themselves in the house of God. What I think that tells us is that today, because there is no physical house where God's manifest presence dwells and there's an Ark of the Covenant that we go into and priests are offering sacrifices, but what I think that tells us today is that the primary way we push into God's manifest presence is through prayer. Here are some examples, right? Solomon said, don't be hasty. Don't rush into God's house. Don't uh, be, watch your foot when you go into the house of the Lord. Jesus said something very similar about prayer. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. So the same thing. When you enter into God's presence through prayer, don't be hasty. Don't run around. Go into your room, close the door, Pray to your father who is unseen. Solomon had something to say about vows in the house of God, in this temple where God would manifestly dwell. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, also had something to say about vows. He said this, Again, you have heard it said to people long ago, don't break an oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the... the the uh, city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So notice the authority that Jesus is speaking with here. He's saying, you've heard Solomon say, be careful about vows. I'm saying, because I'm greater than Solomon, don't make vows at all. Just say yes or no, and anything beyond this is from the evil one. Again, Solomon was the tunnel that was pointing us towards our ultimate reality, and Jesus is the light at the end of the tunnel. Solomon's counsel to not let our mind or our words wander aligns very closely with what Jesus said about prayer. Matthew 5, 33 through 37. And when you pray, 
Don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So again, mindlessness, not giving a lot of words to think that will atone for our sin. And that time it was a temple messenger. But now Jesus is saying, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So there's no need for you to babble and keep on saying things in prayer. Say what you need. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. And then lastly, Solomon's final uh, sort of observation is that God is in heaven and we are on earth. And Jesus says the same thing when he talks about how we are to pray. He starts off his model prayer with, our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name, or great be thy name. So how can we, what can we do with this seemingly uh, parallel application of Jesus and Solomon? Solomon's words about entering and conducting ourselves into the house of God. Jesus' words about prayer and how we enter into God's presence through prayer. The first thing is that I think we should consider our privilege This is Paul speaking about Jesus. After Jesus resurrected, Paul is planting churches, reminding people of the good news, and he says this, in him, referring to Jesus, through faith, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are for your glory. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, and I pray. And he goes on to pray this glorious prayer that he's playing for the church at the time. The privilege we have to enter into God's presence through prayer is something that the people of Solomon's day would have looked forward to. You can enter into God's presence without offering sacrifices, without having to worry about an irreverent act that may get you killed, but because the sacrifice once and for all has been made in Christ, we can enter into God's presence. And what's interesting is Paul, with that same sort of observation that in him, meaning Jesus, we can approach God with freedom and confidence. Now, Paul's next direct application is to say, because of that truth, because I can enter in and know God with freedom and confidence because of what Jesus did, the next action I make, prayer. So very interesting. And I think the, the reason we neglect prayer sometimes is because we don't realize what a privilege it is. We don't realize that this side of heaven, before we experience God's ultimate presence, this side of heaven, this is one of the primary ways that we can enter into the ultimate reality that we are created for. Just like the people at the time would seek God, would go into the temple, would offer sacrifices, would vow vows, we, anytime, anywhere, can come before God and pray. And we can do that with freedom and confidence because of what Jesus has done. God's presence used to dwell tangibly in this house. This is kind of a theme we talked about, right? The house that Solomon built. But the early Christians in the New Testament referred to themselves as living stones, meaning that where God's presence used to dwell tangibly in a house in the Ark of the Covenant, now God's presence dwells in us as his church. So the building that was was existing at the time is now in the New Covenant through the people of God, through the church. 1 Peter 2.5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So perhaps when we have that empty feeling, when that melancholy sneaks up on you and you think, huh, is this it? Is this all I'm created for? Maybe God is calling us into his presence and he's drawing us into that ultimate reality, that holy priesthood that we are, that spiritual house that we are created to be, that exists through faith and that's been, that Jesus has made a way for us to be. So as we think about this week, 
and how we can begin to experience the ultimate reality that God has created us for. Obviously, we could say, don't neglect prayer, right? Pray. I think we all, I think we get that. However, what I find struggle, what I find challenging about prayer is that it's this amazing, mysterious way to come before God, and yet, sometimes I'm praying and I'm like, uh, what do I say? After I've made a few requests and I've, you know, prayed for the few sick people I know, how do we pray? That's what the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? One of the most helpful frameworks for prayer, obviously we could look at the model prayer in Matthew 6, 9, and 10, the way Jesus told his disciples to pray. Some people just kind of slowly work their way through that prayer in their prayer time. One of the most helpful frameworks I found for prayer is called Acts. It's just a summary of how people prayed throughout the scripture. And it can help give us a framework for how, when we enter into God's presence, we can derive and push our energy and our focus and our attention. So Acts simply means this. When we pray, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. These are all examples of how people prayed in the Bible. Adoration, starting with the same framework that Jesus did, our Father who art in heaven. It could be reading a psalm. It could be listening to worship music. It could be doing anything that gets our mind on the magnificence, the beauty, the glory, the power of God. Oftentimes, probably we drift in prayer because we forget who we're praying to. And we think we're praying to a distant deity who's a genie who might or might not do certain things. But if we can start with adoration, start with worship, start with a song, start with reading the Bible, start with silence even, we can begin to frame ourselves for the ultimate reality that we were created for. Second is confession. As we see the holiness and the goodness of God, what we also see, this is the same thing you see in Isaiah 6, as we see God lifted up for who he truly is, we realize, I'm not that, that I've fallen short that I've had bad thoughts, that I've had sinful actions, that I've done deeds that are not worthy to be brought into his sight. And praise God for Jesus because I could be in the same position as Uzzah, getting into the manifest presence of God and having no one to atone for my sin. And we know what happened with that. So that leads us to confession. God, help me. I'm feeling uh, the need to covet I'm feeling lustful. I'm feeling like I don't desire to be in your presence. Sometimes we can confess that we just don't see him for who he truly is and ask him to help us see him more. Confession, this is Psalm 51. I have Nehemiah 1 up there. This is uh, also confession can be a communal idea as well. God, I live in a city or I live amongst a people where your laws are not followed. Confession, just knowing that we exist in a sinful reality that only by God's mercy still exists. Confession will then naturally lead us into thanksgiving. Because if we realize the penalty for our sin, the next logical step is to thank God because we haven't been treated as our sins deserve. And not only that, we've probably also been given many other things that our sins and our righteousness haven't merited. A church body. We have the Bible translated into a language that we can understand. Not every person in the world has that. Not every person in in space and time had that. We can enter the presence of God with freedom and confidence because of what Jesus has done. We can go on and on about the things that we're thankful for. And then finally, supplication. Philippians 4 talks about letting your prayer requests known before God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. We could just say the presence of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your mind and your heart in Christ Jesus. So as we push into that ultimate reality through prayer, as we let our requests known before God, his peace guards us, his presence is with us, and we begin this side of heaven to experience the ultimate reality that we're created for. So that's a simple framework for prayer. 
There are lots of other ones. Uh, there's tons of other resources. I'm sure there's some great books on the table. Um, I'm not putting this up as the model. I'm just saying this is one way that I found helpful. Fun fact, if you do confession first, then it spells cats. So <laughs> easy thing to remember. Cats, confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. Acts or cats. I like cats. Okay. As we think about how we can apply this, I want to go back to what I said up front. It's probably good that we have those melancholy feelings that sneak up on us sometimes. Those feelings of, is this really it? Am I created for more? And the reality is that we are. We are created for more, right? Creation is subjected to sin and futility, and the ultimate reality we are created for is God's presence. I love this description in Revelation 21, 23. It talks about what the heavenly city and what the new heavens and new earth will be like. It says this, the city does not need a sun or a moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. So that ultimate light, that ultimate presence, that ultimate glory that people would see sometimes in the old covenant and the new covenant, um, Ananias and Sapphira, that would kill people. But when we're free of sin, when our bodies are free of the consequences and curse of sin, we'll get to see that presence that we were created for. We'll get to experience the reality that we were created for. It'll be so bright that there won't need to be any lights. Jesus himself, his glory, his majesty, his honor, his power will be the light that lights up the heavenly city. That's an amazing thought to think about. And even in his time, in his day, I appreciate how Solomon kind of ends this passage, verses 18 and 20, or towards the end of that passage. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them and accept their lot and their toil, this is a gift from God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. The occupation and the gladness of heart that Solomon was longing for, the lot that Solomon was longing for, is ultimately found here in Revelation 21 and 22, 23. The gladness of heart that we'll have for all of eternity is fulfilled in Jesus. So we will one day get to experience the ultimate reality that we were created for. But here, in this time, in this place, one, we can thank God for Jesus making a way for, entering, for, making a way for us to enter into God's presence with freedom and confidence. And two, we can manifest that thankfulness through prayer. We can also pray together because the house of God is many living stones coming together. And some of you maybe have experienced powerful times of prayer with other believers. That's another way we can think about how to push into the ultimate reality we were created for, praying together with God's people. And if you haven't experienced that or thought about that, this is your first time hearing about the reality of sin and the sacrifice that Jesus has made. Interestingly, a lot of us know on our faith journey, it started with what? With a prayer confessing our sin before God, asking for his mercy, and receiving communion, receiving the tangible sign of his body broken and his blood shed in our place for our sin. So if that's you tonight, you can take communion as a first sign of wanting to walk with Jesus and wanting to experience the ultimate reality that we are created for, which is God's presence. I'll pray, and then we're going to enter into a time of communion.